Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody. Ready or not, here we come. It's time for Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And tonight, he's dancing in our studio. He went toe-to-toe with U.S. Senator and now presidential candidate Kamala Harris when she was district attorney in San Francisco. Jeff Adachi is the city's public defender. He represents criminal defendants at trial. He does. And we're going to be talking with him about Kamala Harris's time as DA, among other things, and charges from some on the left that she's maybe not quite as progressive as she says she is. We'll talk with him about that and a whole lot more. Yeah, some, maybe some of those notorious cases that he's uh, been involved in defending, including um, one that made national news. But first. But first, uh, some news that you've been really immersed in, Marisa. PG&E, uh, which we're expecting is going to file for bankruptcy next week. Today, I guess they got a little good news. Cal Fire uh, said that their equipment did not cause the uh, fire in Napa that killed 22 people. So, you know, what does that mean for them? You know, I actually don't think it changes much at this point. They'd been kind of indicating they thought this would be the finding. Um, all signs still point to that they will be filing for bankruptcy. I think the big question question is what does this mean for fire victims, of that fire in particular? Because they've all lined up to sue PG&E. Um, of course, bankruptcy is not good for them anyway. But it does raise questions about, you know, if they can sort of prove any fault in a court of law. They're all saying, hey, we still think PG&E messed up and there are other ways that they could have prevented these blazes. Um, But it is certainly a wrinkle. And, you know, again, like you said, one, we're going to be following really closely next week. And there's a CPUC hearing next week, I believe. (laughs) Well, first, yeah. So Tuesday, they could is the earliest day they could file for bankruptcy. Wednesday, they have a probation hearing because they're still a felon from the San Bruno explosion. And Thursday, there's a big CPUC hearing. So expect a lot of PG&E related news next week. And I guess good news for shareholders. uh, The stock went up 73% today, probably be down like 60% tomorrow, maybe. Who knows? Uh, and maybe short-lived good news, because once they are in bankruptcy court, shareholders will be the last in line in some way. So anyway. Do you it, think this changes the conversation all in Sacramento or, you know, in terms of oversight or preventing fires or, you know, what PG&E and others should be doing to, you know, make sure these kinds of things don't happen as, as, as frequently as they have? You know, I don't. I think that PG&E is linked to so many other things that lawmakers are unhappy about and, and that, you know, victims are suing them over that this is certainly, um, you know, I think, again, it changes the calculation for these victims, but it's not, I don't think it's going to change the political calculus. All right. Well, speaking of political calculi, yeah. uh, we had an announcement this week from our junior senator, Kamala Harris. She announced via video and on Good Morning America, uh, that uh, which was happened to be Martin Luther King Jr. Day, no coincidence. 
sense there, a lot of symbolism. Uh, and you have to say, you know, as these things go, these launches, uh, she got pretty good reviews, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I think she did exactly what she wanted to. No huge fireworks, right? But she did say that she raised one and a half million dollars within the first day. Tied you, Bernie Sanders' record, I think, for yeah, 24 hour take. Already, you know, swearing off PAC money, um, has been making the rounds. But as you know, Scott, this has also raised a lot of, I think, critical sort of questions about her time as a prosecutor, as attorney general. And we've seen, I think, a lot of the things that you and I have covered for a long time suddenly sort of come into the fore in the national media. As they will. You know, whenever you decide you're going to go for the top job, everything gets scrutinized. And, uh, you know, she there was a time when she was uh, AG. She talked about being smart on crime, not tough on crime. And she has, you know, tried to portray herself as a progressive prosecutor. And I spoke uh, earlier today, actually, with Lara Bazelon. She's a USF law professor. She wrote a very critical op-ed in the New York Times about Harris's claim that she, you know, was a progressive prosecutor. Um, here's what here's her take on it. What it says to me is that the term progressive prosecutor in the last couple of years has become this very buzzy, trendy word, and it has lots of positive connotations associated with it. And she wants those connotations associated with her. So since she's been in the Senate, she has taken progressive positions, for example, saying that she now supports the legalization of of marijuana. In 2014, when asked about that, she laughed and ran to the right of her Republican opponent. She's also now come out in favor of bail reform. And people who have those positions are considered progressive. But of course, she's not a prosecutor anymore. And she didn't have those positions when she was a prosecutor or any number of progressive positions. What it suggests is that it is a label that she desires because it is an attractive label, but it is a label that does not fit. And I think what she's saying is that she does take positions eventually that are more progressive, like supporting the legalization of marijuana, for example, but that she isn't necessarily out in front on those tough calls. Yeah. And I mean, this is something that I've been observing certainly for the last 15 years as she sort of climbed her, you know, the prosecutorial ladder. I think that Harris has always been very cautious and we've seen her, you know, not be willing to take positions on some criminal justice reforms that were, say, on the ballot um, or other or in particular cases where she said, well, I can't talk about that. It might come before me as a prosecutor. That's not been the case with her successor in either the DA's or the AG's office. And, you know, I think we've seen a little bit more of the Kamala that her supporters and friends know as a senator. Um, And, you know, of course, I think it's worth mentioning Latifah Simon, who is a big big um, criminal justice reform advocate, big social justice reform ad- or, you know, activist, um, did work for Kamala Harris when she was DA and did come out um, and respond to that op-ed and basically say, hey, no, wait a second. She has been on the side of the little guy. I mean, it, it it's complicated. And I think as we can talk with Jeff about it's it's also hard, I think, to assess the record of prosecutors in a lot of way because Statistics don't tell a story yeah. when plea deals are come into play. For well, example. and when you get into the weeds on some of these things, I'm not sure it's going to really affect voters that much. I think the kind of thing that could, because it's more simple, is what happened when she was district attorney and there was a police officer shot and killed. She declined to seek the death penalty for his killer, uh, which is what she promised she would do when mm-hmm. she ran for AG but that or DA. But that's something I think is easily understood, whereas some of these other things are a little more complicated. Although, as she talked with uh, Rachel Maddow about, we'll talk with Jeff Adachi about this, you know, the death penalty is also going to be something that, especially if she gets the nomination, could be, a, you know, an issue of discussion between her and, say, 
Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. Kamala Harris, her entire career and through this point, and this will continue through this campaign, has tried to straddle these two roles. She is a prosecutor. She is a law enforcement officer. She's also a woman of color whose parents are civil rights activists. I think she's tried to really try to straddle that line. I don't know that she's always been successful, but ultimately, I think it's going to be interesting to see where the progressive left goes on those things with her because she does have a lot of support of, say, you know, African-American women and people in that world um, who I think want to see her go even further, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when she was AG, some of the um, African-American caucus in the legislature really pushed her to investigate some of these police shootings of uh, young uh, black men or men of color who were unarmed. Uh, So they were not particularly happy with the way she handled that. But, you know, as you say, She's a woman of color. And I, I, I do wonder if there isn't sort of a bias, Marisa, in her in her direction that, um, you know, maybe she is going to be more compassionate given her background, even though she was a prosecutor. Yeah. I think she's trying to, like you said, find that balance. Yeah, totally. Well, we should talk to Jeff about that, right? I mean, she, she will be... In town on Sunday in Oakland. Um, Big rally. Officially announcing. And I should her say hometown. earlier, I said she said she would not except pack money it's corporate pack money right she's taking labor labor yes there's definitely other yeah yeah exactly yeah so you know we'll we'll be there on sunday uh seeing how it goes and uh we will report back on that all right we're gonna take a short break and when we come back we'll be talking with san francisco's public defender jeff adachi you're listening to political breakdown from kqed public radio Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here, as always, with Scott Schaefer. And we are thrilled to have public defender, San Francisco public defender, Jeff Adachi here. Welcome. It's great to be here. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. So you heard us just talking about Kamala Harris, Senator Harris running now for president. Um, You, you know, were on the other side of the at least proverbial table from her for, what, eight years when she was DA. Yeah. Uh, What do you make of this debate over whether she's progressive or not? Well, first of all, I am excited that she's running because 
I will actually know somebody who's running for president. <laughs> yeah, right? It's cool, Which means isn't like it? maybe you I've know been the around, governor as well. Now. I've been around a long time, and we have all this leadership from San Francisco uh, in the national spotlight, and that's exciting. So there's that local pride. But you're right. I mean, there's been uh, criticism lobbied against her, you know, because she was a prosecutor. I don't think she can deny she was a prosecutor. That's what she did. I know she wants to. Yeah. And, you know, I, I first met Kamala at Hastings. She went to uh, Hastings Law School. Although she's younger than me, I was tutoring there and, and I met her. And I, I recall that she went directly into the DA's office. And I was surprised. I was like, you're going to be a DA? Why and, are you so surprised? Well, because, you know, it wasn't something that you would expect a, a, a woman of color to become a prosecutor. I think her family felt that way, too. Yeah. 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 And, and she said, I remember this. She said, that's how I'm going to change the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, even, even then, you know, I think she saw being a prosecutor uh, that that was a means to have more influence and power in the criminal justice system rather than being a, a defense lawyer that you would be actually able to make the charging decisions and whatnot. So she worked in Alameda. Then ended up in San Francisco. That's where I met her. So, I mean, do you agree with that? And and did she fulfill that promise, I guess, is the question. Like, do you think prosecutors do have more power and ability to affect change? And did she, in the way that folks like yourself who are pretty left-leaning, would have liked? I mean, that's a common narrative that, you know, you, you have a person that comes in and says, I can change the system by becoming the system. You know, I personally, you know, believe that to an extent that you can have some influence, but it's a system because the people in power act according to the design. And if you're a prosecutor, your job is to charge people with crimes and jail them. And the culture, particularly in the United States, is such that the prosecutor's power is pretty much unchallenged by the system. And they, you know, in, in the 90s and the 2000s, a tremendous amount of power was given to the district attorney in their charging decisions. So they could charge a person with a crime, you know, a, a, a crime that wasn't even supported by probable cause and get away with it. So this fundamental debate, I guess you'd call it, about whether or not she was a quote-unquote progressive prosecutor, what do you see on both sides of the ledger there? Well, you know, the term progressive prosecutor, I don't even recognize that as a term yet because <laughs> I've met so few. But at the time that she was a prosecutor, a line prosecutor, and when she was in the DA's office in San Francisco, she worked for the career criminal unit, meaning that she was prosecuting people who were looking at really, really heavy time. And then as, as, as DA, uh, there weren't a lot of progressive prosecutors. And when she ran for office, as you remember, uh, Terrence Hallinan, uh, who was a former defense attorney. He was the incumbent. And, and an own radical was elected uh, out of the Board of Supervisors to become the DA. And uh, although he did a lot of progressive things in terms of drug policy, uh, the department itself uh, was in a little bit of chaos, if you recall. There was a, a diamond Low conviction brought, rates. There was a diamond brought against a police chief, to name one. And so what Kamala ran on was the idea that she would professionalize the office. And back then... That office didn't even have a computer. Our office didn't either, and it's something that we both went through. So she worked to professionalize that office, and that was really her focus. Now, she did have some programs that were reform-oriented. There was one called Back on mm-hmm. Track where they would help young people get an education or uh, stay in school, and, and that was a good thing. And I was impressed by those efforts. But 
there wasn't a lot of reform that was happening then, period. You know, there are a few buckets of criticism. And, of course, we're at the very beginning of this presidential campaign, and it'll all get fleshed out in different ways. But, you know, one of the criticisms is that she's too cautious. You know, she wasn't ahead of the curve in the way that, say, Gavin Newsom was on pot uh, legalization. She declined to take a position on Prop 47, which made a lot of drug crimes uh, misdemeanors, downgraded them from felonies. And then one of the other you wanted to jump in? Oh, yeah. I mean, just, yeah, I think. And then uh, later on, of course, there was things around police misconduct and her kind of siding with the police. And then yeah. you were going to bring up the drug yeah, case, I was bring, right? Well, I was going to bring in the, the San Francisco Crime Lab when she was uh, DA. Of course, now that's run by the police department. But there was a technician there who was, I think, stealing drugs. And Harris claimed she didn't really know about it. Uh, but she didn't tell defense, your, you know, your defense attorneys, public defenders who were involved in cases where this woman may have affected the outcome. And she was asked about this just yesterday, I think, on the Rachel Maddow program on MSNBC. Let's hear her response. The result and the consequence is that cases that prosecutors had worked on were dismissed rightly. And it was my responsibility to say those cases will be dismissed Mm -hmm. because there has been an abuse in the system. And that gets to a wider point where we see abuses in the criminal justice system and in particular by law enforcement. We've got to make sure there's a system in place in this country for consequence and accountability. And there were 600 cases, I think, eventually dismissed. Uh, Jeff, what was your recollection of her role in all that? Well, I mean, this involved a situation where a technician in the crime lab who had been there for nearly 20 years was not only testing the drugs, but was taking home and, and using them. And I think the criticism of uh, the DA's office is that they were very slow to, to act. This technician stopped showing up to court, and they knew something was wrong. And under the law, when they know there's a problem with their witness, they have to let the defense know right away. It's a very bright-line rule, and that didn't happen. And so as a result, a, a judge reviewing the case found that the district attorney's office had failed in their constitutional responsibility to, you know, inform everyone what was happening. And as a result, the crime lab was closed. Uh, There were uh, hundreds and hundreds of cases, actually closer to a thousand cases that were thrown out. And I think initially when this was brought to uh, Kamala Harris's attention, uh, she said, oh, you know, this might affect uh, a few dozen cases. And right away I knew, well, this is going to be much bigger. But I have to say that once they understood you know, the gravity of the problem, they they did do the right thing and dump these cases because there was no way to know that the test results were reliable. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I think like Kamala, you know, ran for office on this anti-death penalty platform, really angered police after deciding not to seek the death penalty um, in the Isaac Espinoza police officer shooting. And then, you know, I think spent a lot of time as DA and, and AG kind of trying to rebuild those relationships with law enforcement and and has talked already in this campaign about this idea that you can be both sort of pro-reform and pro-law enforcement, that we need law enforcement and they should act correctly. Um, but that's not usually where things come down in the political spectrum, right? Because these fights we've been having in recent years over police accountability do become sort of binary. Um, I just, I'm just curious, like, if you think that that is possible to, like, run a campaign trying to sort of have it both ways. And if, if anyone can do it, is it her? Hmm, that a candidate <laughs> for president would be politically calculated. I think, <laughs> you know, the answer is itself. I mean, you, you have to be. And so am I surprised that a person would be both cautious and very disciplined if they have their right. sights on the White House. 
Uh, maybe you'd argue differently now that we have uh, President Trump. But <laughs> nonetheless, I think in, in Kamala's case, you know, she had to make certain calculations. You know, when she ran for DA and ran on the platform of no death penalty, uh, you could not be elected in San Francisco if you were for the death penalty, right? Cause so that was is, not a courageous position. Well, it, it was a practical one. And who would have guessed that, you know, within weeks of taking office, a police officer is shot. And, and we represented the young man who was charged in that case. And she came right out and wrote an op-ed for the Chronicle saying, I'm not seeking the death penalty. And of course, you know, things came down in her ton, like a ton of bricks. I mean, Senator Feinstein, I think at the officer's funeral, even said yeah. something that you, you know, this should not, they should seek the death penalty. What was your take knowing her as you did and working with her? Like what was, how did that affect her? Well, you know, she, she did the right thing and she made a courageous decision, but also a practical one. I mean, it would have destroyed her credibility if she turned around and said, well, you know, wait a minute, let me see. I might charge the death penalty mm. in this case. Some people said, you know, form a committee and punt it to a committee, but it really would come down to her to make that decision. So it was a decision that she had to make. She had to make it. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant uh, for her. Um, but you, you think know, it made her more cautious? You know, it's, 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 it's hard to say because I think that she's the kind of person when she decides that she's going to do something, she just does it. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's necessarily the kind of person that, you know, hems and haws a lot in terms of, you know, making a decision, particularly in public. I think, you know, I haven't seen her often come and say, oh, you know, I'm not sure about that or maybe this or that. She'll usually come down on one side or the other. You sound like you like her. You know, um, we're not like close friends. Yeah. But when you're adversaries with somebody, you do get to know them in a different light because, you know, you're not always going to be friendly with each other. And certainly I've been uh, critical of her. She's been critical of me. And so, you know, that's that's part of uh, what we do. Sounds like you respect her, definitely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's back up and talk a little bit more about you because that's what this show's about. Um, I know you were born in Sacramento to working class parents and um, your grandparents were actually interned during World War II. It sounds like that sort of part of your life, you know, your your family's story did impact sort of how you've approached your job and why you went into this career. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I remember I was in third grade when I learned about it and a teacher mentioned about this internment. And back then, no one talked about it. And so I got in a fight with this other kid who said, oh, your parents were in jail. And uh, I got suspended. And my parents were like, well, why'd you get in trouble? I said, well, over this thing about them saying that you guys were in camps. I said, was that true? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, well, how did that happen? Did you commit a crime? No. The government wow. put 120,000 people. And so I wanted to learn more about that. So I, I, you know, I talked to people and studied about the internment. And it really you know, made me upset that that had happened to them because, you know, uh, um, they were third generation Japanese Americans. So their like great grandparents uh, were were from Japan. Do you think that sort of in some way set you on the course, the professional course that you're that you ended up on? Yeah, that. And, you know, when I was in college and I think I was 19, I got involved in a case of a San Francisco man who was wrongfully convicted of murder was on death row. And I worked on his case, not as a lawyer, but just as like an activist for four years, raised money. Ultimately, uh, the conviction was overturned. And Tony Serra, uh, Stuart Hamlin, two local lawyers, retried the case. And I was in court 
when this man was found not guilty. And it was, you know, after that, I was hooked. I was like, I want to be a defender. Well, you have, um, I think, a reputation of being a really strong advocate for your office and your clients. You're the only elected public defender in the state, which I think probably gives you a little bit more room to be that advocate. But, um, you know, you've also not been afraid to take on popular positions. I mean, you beat sort of the, the hand-chosen successor um, in the public defender's office who was, what, the niece of John Burton, former senator? Actually, his daughter. daughter his daughter, yeah, I'm sorry. Kimmy, Kimmy um, and then, you know, you've taken on um, p- pension issues in the city. Like, as a progressive, come after public unions on that. Um, you've gone after the police department repeatedly when they've had uh, problems with um, police misconduct. I, I don't know. I guess I don't know what my question is, really. Well, but some, like, what, some people, like, what I think, kind of revel you? in yeah. that, you know, that adversarial. Is it do you, do you get sort of energy and get a charge out of that? And I mean, obviously, you're not afraid to break some eggs. Well, you know, it's not always fun to take unpopular positions, and I've learned that the hard way many times. <laughs> but I think that as a public defender, one thing that you learn early on is that you can't be afraid to stand up, even if it's unpopular. I remember one of the first felony trials I tried, the judge brought me up to the bench and said, you're a potted plant. Your job is to get your client to plead guilty. (laughs) And I was just like, whoa. And, you know, we ultimately tried that case and I won it. And uh, that was great. But the next client who was tried in front of that judge got the maximum sentence. And so, you know, you see that kind of unfairness happening. You're not always going to win, you know, the uh, battle, but you try to win the war. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Our guest is San Francisco's public defender, Jeff Adachi. Jeff, you know, I think there are a fair number of people who see what you, meaning defense attorneys generally do, uh, defending, quote unquote, bad guys and helping them looking for ways to you know, minimize their sentence or get them off. Uh, and I'm just wondering, like, what do people not understand uh, about the role of a defense attorney or, in your case, the public defender? Well, it often takes personal experience because once they have a family member who's mm-hmm. in trouble, then suddenly they, they get it. And, you know, the, the idea that, you know, we only represent guilty people is not true. Um, you'd be surprised of how many cases where mistakes are made. And, you know, we just had a case this week where a person was uh, found not guilty and they were trying to go into their own apartment and they were perceived, the man was African-American, he was perceived as, you know, being a burglar. And so these things happen and suddenly a person is in jail, they're charged with a crime, they have a high bail set on their head and, you know, what's going to happen? Who are you going to turn to? Right, Ghostbusters? No, you're going to turn to the public <laughs> defender because that's your only hope. And in this country, public defender defenders have been notoriously underfunded. That's one of the issues I would like to see Kamala Harris step up on. And uh, because if you don't have a strong, well-funded public defender's office, if you have a public defender who's got 500 felony cases at a time, what kind of justice is she going to get? And so that's why I fought very hard to ensure that our office has the resources needed so we can investigate cases, file all the motions, give our clients the same representation they would get if they could afford to hire a lawyer. You you mentioned bail there. And, you know, I mean, clearly you are a tireless advocate for your clients, but also um, I think, you know, Maybe some people might see you as a little stubborn. Last year, you decided to walk away from the bail sort of deal that was happening in Sacramento, saying that the ultimate um, deal you you felt was basically unfair. Um, it gives a lot more power to judges to decide who will get out and and who won't. I'm just curious, like what 
in a situation like that, when it's when it's a conversation over, you know, ending a system that people like you see as inherently unjust and maybe creating one that isn't perfect, like, do you feel at all like you made the perfect the enemy of the good there or was it worth it? To well, I still away? support bail reform in SB 10 right now. There's a um, referendum. 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 It's on hold. It's going to yeah. be on 2020. You can oppose Where the referendum. That's going to be um, my position is going to be that we need the bail reform that's in SB 10. However, we need to improve on that. And our office uh, really sort of started this whole ball rolling in California with the Humphrey case. This was a case involving a man who had a $600,000 bail set, and we appealed it twice to the Court of Appeals. And lo and behold, the Court of Appeals said that bail is unjust. And so we're going to be litigating this case in front of the California Supreme Court. So that's going to determine a lot of parameters of the new law. But the reason I oppose the law is because it gave too much power to the judges by replacing the bail system with something called preventive detention, which essentially allows judges to keep somebody in custody uh, if they feel that they're a danger. I wonder if uh, you have... uh in, your, in, the, in the success of, of getting a defendant off for one reason or another, not guilty uh, verdict, um, have you been worried about that person walking out of the courtroom because you thought even though they got off, they could be a threat to public safety? No. And, you know, people always ask that question. They say, well, what's it like to represent somebody that's guilty? Often you don't know. I'm not saying they're guilty. I'm yeah. just saying, eh, you know, I'm a little nervous. Maybe, yeah. maybe there's a technicality or something and they, they really weren't guilty, you know, by the standards that are, are in front of you. But, you know, you may be worried about they committing another crime. Yeah. I mean, you know, that could happen. I mean, you could represent set, represent somebody for driving with a suspended license and they can go out and get in a car and kill somebody. Is that your fault that that happened? It's our job to make sure that an individual's constitutional rights and their choice to fight their case or not fight their case is respected. And it's no different than if you're going in to, to buy something. You'd want to make sure that you got the best outcome possible. And a lot of cases are overcharged, so maybe you committed an assault, but lo and behold, you're charged with attempted murder. Oh, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to have to have a lawyer who's going to be able to litigate that case. And overcharging is one of the biggest problems that I see in our system, is that people are charged with a crime that the evidence does not support. And you'd be surprised how many cases are thrown out at a preliminary hearing because it's not supported by probable cause. Ten seconds. Do you think that with all the reforms we've seen and a lot of the sentencing changes in the legislature, that that pendulum of power is swinging a little bit away from prosecutors? Yeah, I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime, but it's happening now. And it's going to be a big issue in this presidential debate, I think. All Look right. at that. Yeah. Well, He's good at that. Thank you for coming in. <laughs> Ten seconds. Jeff Adachi, thank you so much for coming in. Well, thanks for having me. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer, as always, is Guy Marzarati and our engineer, Seal Muller. And you know what? If you want to hear a little bit more about Kamala Harris's time in San Francisco, tune into the Bay. Uh, that might be my second favorite podcast. I'll be on Friday's show actually talking about her record in San Francisco as DA. All right, good. Tune into that. Ethan Lindsay is our executive editor. Holly Kernan is our chief content officer. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me at M Lagos. That is a wrap for this week's political breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.